0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Today, as you heard, is called Shabbat Teshuvah, which is the Sabbath between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's known as the, as the Sabbath of Repentance, or the Sabbath of Return, Shabbat Teshuvah. And so I want to look today at the, the themes of, of sin and holiness. And to do that, I want us to look at a classic text that talks about rebellion and priestly atonement uh, in the Torah. Uh, the story of Zimri and Cosby and Pinchas, Phineas, in, in uh Bamibar in Numbers 25. So turn with me to Numbers 25, and we'll put it on the overhead as well, please. Numbers 25, uh, beginning in verse 1. While Israel was staying at a team the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to to the sacrifices of their gods. The men ate ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to, Israel, to Israel's judges, each of you was put to death, those of your people who've yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman, right before the eyes of Moshe and the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance of the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. When Pichas... Phineas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the Kohain, the priest, saw this. He left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into his tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Pichas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the Kohen, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am. Therefore, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. So tell him I'm making my brit shalom, my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of an eternal priesthood, because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed with uh, with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, a leader of the Simeonite family from from Simeon. Uh, And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zer, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. The Lord said to Moses, Treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. They treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the Peor incident uh, involving their sister Cosby, daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of that incident. Amen. So I want us to look at this text on, on under four headings today on the overhead. Uh, the horrible context of, of the story. The heightened conflict caused by sin. The honorable commendation of Pinchas, uh, And our holy commitment to die to self and live for the Lord. So first, the the horrible context of this story. The events of this text in Numbers 25 occurred following the exodus from Egypt. Uh, The Lord worked the staggering displays of his power in our midst, rescuing us from from bondage in Egypt, showing himself uh, to be a God who who deals and delivers his people, Uh, a warrior who fights uh, our battles, and a sovereign who rules over all the nations. When the Lord brought us to Sinai, he gave us his Torah. Uh, which was not only instruction, but also revealed to us the divine heart of whom we are in covenant with. The Lord said in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 2, on the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in the heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. These first two commandments are at the heart of the covenant. God pledged to be Israel's God, and they pledged that they would be his people. After Mount Sinai, uh, Israel traveled through Moab uh, and and were confronted with Balaam and Balak. Uh, Balaam was a prophet for hire who found out that he could not curse God's people. For whom the Lord blesses, he could not curse Balak was the king of Moab, and uh, he was desperately seeking to put a stumbling block in the way of Israel, fearing what the Lord had done to all the other enemies of Israel. The Lord, the Lord was clearly protecting and blessing Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. The Lord would only allow Balaam to speak his words of blessing over Israel, despite how much Balak paid him to curse God's people. So Balaam had this brilliant idea. If block and the Moabites and and their Midianite allies could entice Israel to sin and to worship other gods, then the Lord himself would curse Israel. So by the time we get to our text in Numbers 25, we see that the Israelites had indeed been enticed and seduced and had fallen into sexual immorality and into blatant idolatry. Look at Numbers 25, beginning in verse 1. While Israel was staying at Shachim the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The literal Hebrew here for immorality is zonah, uh, harlotry. And the King James Version actually is more literal here. Look again at Numbers 25, verse 1. The King James says, The sons of Israel began to commit whoredom uh, with the daughters of Moab. (laughs) And this is meant both literally and physically. Uh, I'm sorry, literally physically and spiritually. Uh, part of the sexual immorality of the Moabites and the Midianites is that they would use uh, these practices of fornication as a way of worshiping their gods. So it was both physical and spiritual. Uh, and, and throughout the Bible, God calls Israel's sins of rebellion and, and treason what? As spiritual adultery against him. So, for example, in Jeremiah 3, beginning in verse 6, we read this Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She's gone up into every high hill under every spreading tree, and has committed adultery there. And I gave faithless Israel a certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. Yet I saw her unfaithful sister Judah had, had, uh, had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with wood and stone. Israelite's idolatry is seen as spiritual adultery Against the Lord. So on, on the overhead, uh, likewise, back in, in, in Numbers 25, we see the Israelites' physical immorality was just a symptom of their spiritual adultery against the Lord. In fact, their treacherous rejection of God preceded their physical bowing down before these false idols, these gods of Moab. So Numbers 25, verse 3 says So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. Our people, Despite the Lord being in our very midst, right, with a pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, we were eating and prostrating ourselves, whoring ourselves with false gods. This is the tragic, horrific context of our passage here. Numbers 25, verse 3, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Notice that it was the smiling seduction of the world that ensnared Israel into idolatry, which provoked the Lord's righteous anger. Uh, like a jealous husband would feel toward a wayward wife. We, too, are far too easily ensnared by the smiling seductions of the world. But on this Shabbat to Shuvah, the Sabbath of repentance, the Lord is calling us to a set-apart, separate, holy life of purity, of chastity, uh, of moral cleanliness, with men treating every woman who's not your wife or a family member as your sister in the Lord, and to guard your heart and to guard theirs. Now, in his anger, the Lord pronounces a death sentence on all who participated in the spiritual treason, all who yoked themselves to this God, the Baal of Peor. Look at verse 4, Numbers 25, verse 4. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people, hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. The literal Hebrew here implies that the leaders were, to be, uh, were implicit in this sin were to be impaled and raised up on a stick uh, to be publicly displayed as traitors of God, as a warning to the people. So this is the horrible context here. Uh, the holy God, who had been right in, the, in our midst, finds us openly, brazenly, lying with other gods, spiritually, worshiping, worshiping false gods, And I want us to see how this constitutes cosmic treason in at least four ways on the overhead. First, first sin, of course, is a moral evil. It's a negation of what's right. And this may seem obvious, but it's important to emphasize because today we live in a culture of moral relativism where people no longer believe in sin or in biblical morality. They establish their own moral authority apart from God, doing what's right in their own eyes, becoming a law unto themselves. Their only authority is themselves, self-rule. Our culture's attitude today is summed up in a title to a famous old uh, R&B, Rhythm and Blues song, If Loving You Is Wrong, I Don't Want to Be Right. <laughs> we see the same type of moral re- rebellion in the opening verses here of Numbers 25. The people turn to harlotry uh, and to idols, and they're doing well, with, what they preferred rather than what God commanded. So number two on the overhead, secondly, sin is not only a moral evil, it's also rebellion against the love of God, against God's love. You know, throughout the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel is called uh, God's wife and God is called our husband. Yet time and again, we abandon our heavenly husband in adultery with other gods. Can you think of a more treasonous act than a wife abandoning her husband or a husband abandoning his wife and giving themselves to another? And this is only a dim picture of the kind of treason that sinners commit against the Lord uh, when you and I act out of our sin nature and we bow down and we worship other gods and we give ourselves over uh, to sexual immorality. Uh, it's cosmic treason against the Lord. Number three, third, sin is a personal attack on God. You know We have a sense that our sins are private, uh, that they, they don't affect anybody else. Sin today is seen as kind of disembodied, uh, is unattached to anything or to anyone. But this passage makes it clear, that is not God's attitude about sin. Sin is treason in the sight of God. It's committed against God himself. It is a personal attack on God. That's why King David writes in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. what's evil in your sight. And then fourthly in the overhead, sin provokes the wrath of an omnipotent and holy God. This is classic commentator on the overhead, Matthew Henry. He writes this. Israel's whoredoms did that which all of Balaam's enchantments could not do. They set God against them. Now he was turned to be their enemy and fought against them. Israel thought they were right with God because they were his chosen people. They, but they were chosen for a purpose, to be a light to the nations. But instead, the nations ended up influencing them. You know, we see the same problem today uh, with rabbinic orthodoxy. You know, we're supposed to make our fellow Jews jealous for the gospel, right? But instead, they all too often, they make us jealous. Uh, We're jealous of them and our misplaced zeal to to try to be like them uh, and to emulate them. Trying to be like the religious, thinking that this somehow brings us closer to God. But all it does is lead us to false assurance. Because false assurance occurs when you think you're right with God, despite having no saving, covenantal, personal relationship with him through faith in Yeshua, I cannot think of a scarier situation. And on this day of the Sabbath of repentance, Shabbat Shuvah, let's take to heart the words we read in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after having received the knowledge of the truth, if we do this, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fiery fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Kover Chomer, how much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant? by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. For it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. On this Shabbat Teshuvah, let's be quick to repent. Fleeing from a lifestyle of sin, through the blood of the Lamb, and not face the wrath, or the discipline, or the judgment of the Lord. For it is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. i who commit treason against him. We'll have to answer to him on the, Yom Hadin, on the day of judgment. So on the overhead, that's number one. That's the horrible context of this passage. And let's look at number two now, the heightened conflict. Look at verse 6, numbers 25, verse 6. And behold, there's an Israelite man. He comes and he brings a Midianite woman into the camp right before the eyes of Moses. And before the whole Ka Israel, the assembly of Israel. While well, they, were, they, were, well, they, the people of Israel, were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So get the picture here. God speaking to his people. Uh, he had summoned them to the tent of meeting. In his fiery anger, the Lord had been correcting the treason that the Israelites had been committing against him on the plains of Moab. Suddenly, the assembly is interrupted. An Israelite man, Zimri, one of the leaders of the tribe of Simeon, walks in brazenly with this Midianite cult prostitute. Right in front of everybody. Again, picture the scene. All of Israel is before the tent of meeting. Some are kneeling before the Lord. Others are on their face, prostrate before him. Others, at their head, bowed in prayer. In strolls, Zimri and Cosby, ignoring the covenant worship of God, there's brazenly striding through the crowd. And they did this in the sight of Moses and the sight of the whole congregation who are weeping and repenting and praying at the tent of meeting. And most of all, of course, they did it in the sight of God. Impudently, without shame, Zemi is defiantly striding through the camp where the people are weeping over their sin. Uh, I used to know an old godly woman who, when one of her kids was caught in an untruth, she said say to them, you know what? You are a lie. But there were degrees of lying, of course, and so if it was pretty obvious, she would say, you are a bald-faced lie, <laughs> And if you were past the point of no return, she'd say, you are a brazen lie. <laughs> and that's what we see here with Zimri and Cosby, brazenness. <laughs> this Israelite man was a brazen idolater, and adulterer in the sight of God. And all the camp of Israel, he's walking through the camp openly, thumbing his nose at God. Pichas, Phinehas, he sees this. Numbers 25, verse 7. When Pichas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, He left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite into his tent, and drove the spear into both of them, through the Israelite man, into the woman's stomach. Then the plague against Israel was stopped, but those who died in the plague were 24,000. The picture here is that Pinchas caught them in the very act of sexual immorality and drove his spear through both of them. Now, this not only stopped the immorality they were committing, uh, but also stopped the plague that the Lord had sent into the camp in response uh, to this and to prior immorality and idolatry and spiritual adultery. So we see here four aspects of sin on the overhead. Uh, first, notice that Zimri has, Zimri has opened contempt for the Lord. This is what sin does. His contempt for the Lord is seen in the fact that his outrage occurs as the people were assembled before God. So if he brings this midnight prostitute into his tent in front of everybody. Of course, today, we don't think of sin as contempt for God, do we? We say, oh, it was a mistake or, or I messed up. But at the heart of sin is an attitude of contempt toward the Lord and toward his holiness and his righteousness. Now, on the overhead, if you're discussing someone's sin with them, and, you, and if you were to say to them, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you have contempt for God. But they're probably going to immediately say, no, I don't. When I did that, I wasn't even thinking about God. And when you hear that, you say, exactly. (laughs) That's the nature of contempt. It's not retaining the knowledge of God in your life, in your heart, in your affections. It's suppressing the knowledge of God. We are to be consumed with the love of Yeshua and a desire to worship him. But because of our sin, our contempt for the Lord manifests itself. Uh, at the most basic level, of course, they're not even thinking about him, but delighting in sin. That's why sin is treasonous. That's why we read in Romans eight verse seven, The carnal mind, the sinful mind, is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And James tells us this in James four: four, Don't you know friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes, wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So in the overhead, number two, sin makes us side with the sinner in his sin before we side with God in his holiness. And we shrink back, don't we, when we, we see uh, Pichus thrusting his spear through and Cosby. We think, well, oh, this is excessive. Uh, this is unwarranted. This is cruel. This is violent. Then we get down to verse 9. We read that the Lord had killed 24,000 in the plague. It was only Pincus' reaction that stopped that plague. So ask yourself, do I side with sinners in their sin or with the Lord in his holiness? On the overhead, number three, sin leads to our ruin as God puts down our rebellion. Psalm thirty-four sixteen, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, uh, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven above against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is angered by sin. Therefore, he judges sin and unrighteousness. This leads us to our ruin apart from Yeshua. And then finally, fourth on the overhead, sin should drive us to weeping and wailing before God because it's an offense to him. We should, be, we should be the ones weeping and gathering around the tent of meeting. Psalm thirty four eighteen. the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and to those who are crushed in spirit. Matthew 5, verse 2, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The glorious promise of the gospel, That those who weep over their sin, those who repent and sackcloth on ashes, and who call upon the name of Yeshua for deliverance, and rely upon and trust him, they will be comforted. Those who are brokenhearted and contrite in spirit will enter God's kingdom. Those who have Yeshua as their treasure are joined to him, and will see God. So in the overhead, that's the moment number one, the, the horrible context, and number two, the heightened conflict. Uh, Now, next, verses 10 to 13, show us the honorable uh, commendation of Pinchas. Look at Numbers 25, beginning in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Pinchas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am. Because of this, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him, I'm making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants were of a covenant of everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. God commends Phineas because he was, was zealous with my zealousy. Pinchas was jealous for God's name in the way God himself is zealous and is jealous. Uh, the same word in Hebrew, by the way, uh, for his name. The Israelites, as God's people, were to represent God's holiness to the nations. Likewise, in Messiah, in 1 Peter 2, tells us that we're to be a rock for all the earth. On the overhead, this passage teaches us, first, that because sin is treason and requires correction, it requires correction, and in his holiness, God corrects those whom he loves. God's love goes hand in hand with his holiness. So my brothers and sisters, of that's Chaim, do not bristle at correction. Beware the evidence of treason that resists correction. On the overhead, resolve now while you're in your your right mind, while you're still sober, that at any point a brother or a sister should speak to you to correct you, that you'll receive the correction with God's help. You cannot develop holiness in an instant. When sin is sweeping you away, you will not be able to be in your right mind. You won't be inclined to receive the correction, the correcting love of God's people. So resolve now that should you ever stumble or fall, that you will receive the correction the Lord uses as evidence of his love to restore you. He uses correction to restore his people. On the overhead, second, because sin is treasonous, it requires atonement. God's righteous wrath must be turned away. There must be reconciliation between the sinner and a holy God. Pincus' actions were identified with atonement. And as a priest, Pincus points us, of course, to the Kohen HaKadol, to the great high priest, Yeshua himself. Pincus was promised a perpetual priesthood, a promise that's fulfilled in Yeshua the Messiah. Pincus made a type of sacrifice that, that appeased God, but Messiah made the ultimate, perfect sacrifice that would cleanse us from our sin. So on the overhead, Pentecost picked up a javelin uh, and speared sinners, bringing about their death. But sinners would pierce Yeshua, whose death would bring about our life. Numbers 25, therefore, is a Torah picture of the gospel. It's Yeshua's ultimate sacrifice, it's a picture which atones and satisfies and turns God's wrath away, not just for a moment, but eternally, for all who are in Messiah Yeshua by trusting faith. And the overhead brings us to number four, finally, our holy commitment to the Lord. On this day of Shabbat Teshuvah, we need to turn, uh, we need to remember John 12, verse 24, where it says, Yeshua says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. According to Yeshua, what is the key to a seed bearing fruit? It has to die. Yeshua is saying, in order for you to live, you have to die. The immediate context here is Yeshua is about to go to the cross. He's about to literally die. But through his death, he brings life to the world. And in the same way, Yeshua says, if we are to bear fruit on this Shabbat to Shuvah, we, you and I, must die. Listen to the next verse, John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Yeshua is no longer just only talking about his own death. He's talking about your life. Yeshua is saying to you, if you want to live, you have to die. That's what he means when he's talking about hating your life in this world. In order to be Yeshua follower, you must die to sin and die to yourself and die to the ways of this world. So ask yourself, is this my testimony? Look at Galatians 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Messiah. It's no longer I who live, but Messiah who lives in me. To live in the next world, you must die to this world. To bear fruit that lasts, you must lay down your life. If you want to live, you have to die. Die to self, die to sin, die to the ways of this world. I want to flesh these three three things out for you today. On the Shabbat to these ways that we need to die. So on the overhead, first, in order to live eternally, you must die to sin. This doesn't mean you'll never sin, but when you do sin, you will hate it. You will hate that you're prone to sin. You don't want to sin. And when you do, you confess it, you repent, you turn from it, you renounce it. You don't toy with it. You don't entertain it. You don't give it an opening. You don't treat sin lightly or as trivial. So on this Shabbat of return, Shabbat of repentance, ask yourself, when was the last time that I wept over my sin? When was the last time I cried out for forgiveness? When was the last time I was broken over my sin? That's Chaim. We need a newfound hatred of sin all of us do we hate sin so much that when we gather together for worship we weep over our sin ask yourself in my entire life have I ever been to a church or synagogue service where people openly wept over their sin crying out in honest confession and brokenness over their sin maybe we need to start You know, in America, we've created this religious entertainment culture where we go to services every week, we watch what happens up on the stage, and we move on with our lives as normal, as if nothing's happened, and we got our fill of entertainment for the week. But what would happen if we stopped and we said, this is not a spectator sport? It calls for a response confessing to one another, asking for forgiveness, repenting before the Lord in the power of the blood of Messiah. What would happen if during, after the message, uh, during worship, we started crying out in confession of all the sin we've been hiding before God, uh, all the sin that we've been harboring against one another? What would happen If we started confessing our sin, hating our sin, bringing it out into the open, falling on our faces before a holy God, weeping over sin, why is that so foreign to American religious faith? Why is that so foreign to us? May the spirit of God move on our hearts and the overhead. This leads to the second death that we need. In order to live, you, number one, you must die to sin. Number two, you must die to self. Revival only breaks out when you're desperate for God. That's kind our nation is struggling. Uh, uh, the churches and messianic synagogues are struggling. We need to corporately cry out to Yeshua for help. We need a prayerful... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We need a prayerful desperation for the Lord. I heard a story recently of a messianic rabbi who was visiting um, Seoul, South Korea. He was staying at a hotel, and he was all of a sudden woken up at 4 AM to the sounds of shouting outside. He looks out his hotel window and he sees a stadium full of people. So he goes down to the lobby and he asks the receptionist, What sport do y'all play at 4 a.m.? <laughs> What's going on in that stadium? And the receptionist says, oh, sir, that's not a sporting event. That's the church praying to God. It's the roar of believers crying out to the Lord from a packed stadium at 4 a.m. You know, we gather here in stadiums also in America, don't we? But for very different reasons. Our roars, our cries are not for God. I hear this story and I say, Lord, I want to pray like that. Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to die to self. And the overhead, what is prayer? Prayer is an expression of death to self. Prayer is saying, I can't do it. I need you, Yeshua. And when you don't pray, you're saying, Yeshua, I can do this without you. I've got it. But of course you can't. We need a newfound appreciation of how much we need the Lord in our lives. We need God in our lives. We need God in our marriages. We need God in our families. We need God in our kids' lives, in our teenagers' lives, in our young adults' lives. We need God to strengthen us in the midst of all of our temptations and our trials. We need the Lord at time. We need the Lord in our country. And we need to stop living our lives uh, as if we can do it all without Yeshua. We cannot do it. We cannot do anything without him. We desperately need the Lord. And if you really believe that, you would pray like you need him. You would cry out to him with passion. Because you know that you cannot do it on your own. So, Lord, I ask you to help us on this Shabbat, the Shabbat to Shuba to die to ourselves. Lord, deliver us from our sinful self sufficiency. You have to die to yourself if you want to live. If you want your marriage, your family, your children, your congregation, your country to be what God has designed them to be, we all need to pray. And, overhead. and then finally, number three, in addition to dying to sin and dying to self, we must die to the ways of this world, meaning uh, the pursuits uh, and the pleasures and the possessions and the priorities of this world. I recently read some amazing accounts I want to share with you briefly of, of Korean believers historically who, who were uh, persecuted for their faith, uh, first by the Japanese uh, during World War II, and then after that uh, by the communists uh, in North Korea. You know, during the Japanese occupation of Korea in World War II, one of the main issues was shrine worship. Japan would set up all these shrines all over Korea, and and required the Koreans to to bow down to to to, to the shrines. And the Korean Christians said, "No, that is idolatry. Uh, We we risk our lives. We will risk our lives before we bow down to these shrines." As a result, many of them were kicked out of schools. They lost their jobs. They were thrown into prison. One young pastor, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, chuki Chul, he was arrested in 1938. He was in prison for six months, questioned, released, threatened, do not keep preaching against shrine worship or else. The very next week, he steps into his pulpit. He tells his people, if you bow down at the feet of shrines, that is idolatry. Informers were in the church, surprise, and they turned him in. And he was arrested again, pulled away from his crying children. His congregation would meet every day at 5 a.m., in the, even in the bitter cold, to pray, to pray what? That the Lord would release him? No, the main thing they prayed was that the Lord would help him stand under persecution. He was flogged. He was tortured over and over again as his captors tried to persuade him to bow to idols. He never gave in. He withered in prison for the next six years until his body wasted away. He said to his wife, I have followed the Lord. Now follow my footsteps, and one day we will meet in heaven. One of his sons went on to follow his, in his footsteps. as an evangelist uh, all across what was then North Korea, before he too was martyred. But the crop of keen young men, able in God's word, uh, on fire for the Lord, now serving even to this day in congregations throughout South Korea, came directly from that son's ministry. And it's an exceptional uh, uh, heritage he has. Again, John 12:24. Truly, truly, I say to you on the overhead, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies on the overhead, please, and it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Kim yun sup was arrested ten times every time they tortured him. They stretched his back on a bench with his hands tied behind him, his head hanging over the edge. They then would put, pour hot water down his nostrils to, simula, simula, uh, to simulate drowning, sometimes adding red pepper to increase the pain. They branded him with a hot iron. Uh, they then they used the back of a chair as a fulcrum to bend his body backwards to simulate bowing to a shrine. And he'd kick and he'd fight and he'd scream to keep from bowing. Occasionally, they would release him for a short time to let him taste freedom and life with his family and his congregation. And when he would refuse to bow, they would arrest him again and yank him away from his crying children. Before his 10th arrest his eventual death in prison, he was asked this question on the overhead police. How do you have the courage to keep going in the face of constant arrest? He said... When I became a Yeshua follower, I died with Messiah. And once you are dead, what men do to you cannot hurt you. At the end of the Japanese occupation came the onslaught of communism, which was actually far more brutal than anything the Japanese had ever done. Mass tortures, mass executions. At one point, the so-called people's police ordered... 180 church members to come to their building for a meeting. When they got there, they were locked inside of this wooden church building, and the building set on fire. With armed officers surrounding the building to shoot anyone who tried to escape. The Korean believers knew they were going to die. So they started singing in worship. Until the burning building collapsed over them, and they were consumed in the fire. One last account. Sun Young won to pastor in a leper colony. He refused to worship at the shrines. He was arrested and prison for years. Then, when the communists took over, his two eldest sons went off to school, hoping to go to university. One day, a mob of communist students came to the campus. Because they knew these two were believers, they started to beat them. Eventually, the leader named An, the leader of this mob, shot and killed both of them, both boys. When An, the killer, went to trial, the pastor, uh, Sun Young Wan, sent a note to the judge asking for his son's killer to be spared and offering to adopt him as his own son. The judge, of course, was totally shocked, but agreed. And Pastor Sun adopted on his son's killer as his own son. Years later, the communists invaded this leper colony where, the, where Pastor Sun had gone back to minister. He refused to flee, he was arrested, he was imprisoned, he was executed. His adopted son, An, who had become a believer, wept over his body. Now, none of these stories make sense if John 12 is not true. If life is all about your possessions and your pleasures and your pursuits in this world then these Korean brothers and sisters totally wasted their lives. They should have lived it up in this world. But they did not waste a thing. They spent their life on what matters. I think we're the ones who are tempted to waste our lives. I guarantee you, not one of these brothers or sisters regrets for a second hating their lives in this world. On the overhead, John twelve twenty six. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Can I tell you where all these brothers and sisters are right now? They're with Yeshua. And the Father is honoring them. They don't regret for a second hating their lives in this world. They knew life, real life. And today, while we're here at Shul, our North Korean brothers and sisters in the Lord, they're languishing in labor camps and suffering terrible, unbelievable persecution and dying. And our South Korean brothers and sisters in the Lord, they're dying to self and to the ways of this world to make the gospel known to the ends of the earth. Did you know that today, South Korea, even though it's a small country, is the second largest missionary sending country in the world, behind only the U.S.? Revival here in the U.S. is only possible if you and I are willing to die to sin and die to self and die to the ways of this world so that we may live what's really going to matter far beyond this world. On the Shabbat Shuva, I want to challenge you to die. Die to sin, die to self, die to the ways of this world. To hate your sin, to weep over it, to ask the Lord, Lord, break every stronghold in my life. Lord, open my eyes to the sin in my life, to the sin in my heart, to my lust, to my greed, to my lying tongue, to my jealousy, to my resentment and bitterness, to my gossip, to my violence, to my judgmentalism, my pride, my unbelief. My unforgiveness, my addiction, my self centeredness and rebellion. Die to yourself. Live for Yeshua that you may bear much fruit. I talk to people who say, you know, our country is just too far gone. There's no hope left for us. That is not true. But let's be clear our hope is not in another election, our hope is not in any one particular leader, our hope is in our God. He is able to move in mighty ways when we call upon him, when we pray, when we repent, we cry out in faith. We need a spiritual awakening in our life, in our family, in our congregation, in the North Texas Jewish community, in our nation. So on the Shabbat, Shuvah, the Sabbath, of return, ask yourself, Lord Yeshua, what do you want for my life? John 12, whoever lives, whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world keeps it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. These are hard but glorious words. It's hard to die to sin. It's hard to die to self. It's hard to die to the ways of this world, but it is worth it, my brothers and sisters, infinitely worth it. It's worth it to gain eternal life and to bear kingdom fruit for Yeshua that will will continue to make an impact far beyond your own life and will help others come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua. And in the end, it's worth it then for you to hear these glorious words. Well done, my faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Get the music team to come on up, please. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you so much on this Shabbat Teshuvah and the Sabbath of repentance and the Sabbath of return. Lord, help us truly from our hearts to repent and to return to you. You tell us that a grain of wheat will bear fruit and will grow and will multiply only if it falls to the ground and dies. In the same way, we need to die. Lord Yeshua, help us today to truly die to sin, to renounce our sin, to flee from it once and for all, to put it away from us. Help us to die to self, to our pride, to our ego, to our sense of entitlement, to our critical spirit, to being so easily offended. Lord, help us to die to the ways of this world, its pursuits, its pleasures, its priorities, its possessions. Help us to hate the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. If you tell us that if we are friends with this world, then we are your enemies. Lord, we want to die to sin and to self and to the world that we may bear lasting fruit for you and your kingdom, eternal fruit, abiding fruit. So, Lord, help us today to see our sin like you see it. Help us not let us go on week after week This is as usual, life as normal. Help us in the Sabbath of repentance to hate sin, uh, to weep over it, to, to cry out to you, to realize how much we need you. So Lord, fill us with your spirit so that we will want you more and more. Give us today a holy desperation for you and a holy discontent with the spiritual status quo of our life. No more coasting through casual, comfortable, surface commitment to you, Yeshua. No, we want to follow you wholly, and we want the fullness of you in our life. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.